It's Wednesday, August 18th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, which is loosely based on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Today, we're bringing you part one of my conversation with Lisa Bryant, the director and executive producer of the acclaimed series, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. Netflix released it last summer, but the story of Epstein's trafficking and connections is still unfolding. Plenty of questions have yet to be answered, and there's also the matter of the upcoming trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, who allegedly recruited many of the young girls Epstein abused. In this first part of my interview with Lisa, she and I discussed the making of Filthy Rich, how Epstein gained his wealth and came to meet Maxwell in the first place, and the details of his first conviction back in 2008. Tomorrow, in part two, we talk about how Epstein was caught the second time around for good. Here we go. Lisa, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. When did you start paying attention to this story? Well, I had been working with Joe Berlinger, who's a true crime kind of pioneer, um, on several other projects. And I heard through him that they were at Radical Media working to bring this story to light through Netflix. And they wanted a woman to to helm this because of the, the sensitive subject matter. You know, we, we have all learned so much about the story now. Unfortunately, it's taken 30 years to unfold. And that's largely because of Epstein and his team of lawyers and co-conspirators and enablers who've really just managed to shut this down. They didn't want the media to report on it. They didn't want the women who were abused to report on it. There were NDAs and threats and harassment and all of this. And I just wanted to learn more and dig into it and try to help understand and expose what might have happened before that enabled him to continue a life you know, of, of abuse for so long. How did James Patterson get involved? James Patterson is, is a best-selling author. And in 2016, he knew that Epstein was a neighbor, a few blocks down, less than a mile from his house. He got wind of, of this story and he wrote his first nonfiction novel about it. And quite frankly, it was his first non-bestseller. And he was just kind of angered that the media would not like really run with this. He had gotten police reports and things like that and, and published them. And basically the story continued to kind of just be brushed under the rug. So he then with his team of entertainment people trying to get people to, to latch onto this, but nobody wanted to touch it because of the high powered circle of you know right. Epstein's web. It's like, oh, Prince Andrew, well, maybe nobody uh, from the palace will ever do an interview again. So we got to stay away from that and things like that. And Netflix, finally, it was very difficult because he was alive. It was very difficult for them to green light this. There were for, for about a two year process. They were taking every precaution legally. They knew, Epstein knew that they were considering doing this. We began eight months before all of a sudden he was arrested. So there were a lot of precautions taken before we really got the green light to move on this. We had secret cameras in our room. We knew that Epstein knew about it. We wanted to make sure that they weren't hacking our computers. We had a, you know, like a secret server. And, it, it, you know, there were great precautions taken because we were determined to expose this guy. Let's start with money. Um, for the life of me, I can't figure out how Jeffrey Epstein got so rich. I mean, offering tax and investment counsels seems to be 
you know, if you're Goldman Sachs and you're doing wealth management for wildly rich people, you do eventually pile up hundreds of millions, billions of dollars maybe. But I don't get how he got to be so rich. Is it just as simple as tax and investment advice, or is your guess that it's more than that? Well, we definitely know through reporting and and investigating that Les Wexner is the main source of his income. Uh, There's also a lot of other things, you know, his connections go way deep to Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell. Mm -hmm. Ghislaine Maxwell, his, you know, alleged sidekick and um, main co-conspirator, her father has a very similar fraudster con man background and also died mysteriously. So did Epstein. So there's a lot of digging to be done there. There's a lot of conspiracy theories going on. Uh, we definitely have learned Epstein worked with Israeli intelligence alongside Robert Maxwell and did Ghislaine also. You know, it's very rife for many new discoveries and a lot of rumors and some things that can be backed up. My theory is that he was a money launderer. But, well, uh, that's absolutely very likely. Yes. And, and funneling money for, for numerous people all over the world, really. Right. So we have these very prominent people in the financial world, in technology, obviously, Bill Gates, in politics. And presumably, those people have on retainer people, lawyers and due diligence people who say, this guy is a problem, or say, we could get better investment (laughs) advice, you know, from Morgan Stanley or something. How did Epstein evade what I assume around these very prominent, very rich people is a fairly sophisticated web of due diligence. Well, I think it's called blackmail. Why would someone like Bill Gates be involved with him if there wasn't something? We don't know what that something is, but obviously I think Epstein's a great liar, but you have Leon Black. I mean, heads have been rolling. You have Prince Andrew just sued by Virginia Dufresne, one of the victims. I think a lot of people were very fearful of what could transpire, whether or not they were partaking in some of the young women or some of the older women. You know, clearly Epstein's, I guess, reputation with young women is something that those men don't need to be associated with, but they did because he was good at, I'm going to donate $100 million to the Gates Foundation or the Clinton Foundation. He used his wealth and power to trap these men, I think, into situations that may or may not have been illegal may or may not have been as bad as people want to think. But I think that overall, it's the threats that Epstein was so good at that had people running scared um, and continued to associate with him because they thought they were going to get money. It's all about money. Right. So, I mean, basically, if you were on the island, then he had you, so to speak, right? Right. Right. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Lisa Bryant. One thing that interests me about Epstein is his striving for status, right? So you can see with Leon Black, and that's about money and blackmail and so on and so forth. But he also sort of ingratiated himself, I guess would be the way you might put it, with some of the world's most prominent scientists at MIT and at Harvard. What was that about? Well, I think he did have a genuine interest in science and maybe even philanthropy. And whether whether that all was a cover up for his ultimate scheme, but I do think you know he was he was a very smart mathematician. Math and science was his thing. Skipped two grades in high school. You know, lied on his resume to get a job at the 
prestigious Dalton school. I do think there was an interest and, you know, from everybody that we have spoken to really said he's kind of one of those guys that could carry a conversation and get to just so far that you think he's, he's brilliant, but you push it just a little too far. Then he ta- starts talking about girls. He, he goes off of the topic. So I mm-hmm. think he was very intelligent, no doubt. I mean, who could pull off what he pulled off? But I do think he latched onto that as a, as a cover up for what he was really doing because his MO changed over the years. You know, I think his abuse now could be traced back to the Dalton days. So in the 90s, he had Ghislaine Maxwell allegedly considered innocent until proven guilty. But as all the women say and testify and will testify in these new charges, she was really running his show for him. She was his entree into President Clinton and all these big people. It was her Rolodex. But she was also the one because, you know, allegedly she was so madly in love with him that she would do anything for him. Uh, And that's the big question, I think, this kind of why would someone of her stature and her background um, stoop so low to betray these women when she should have been a mother figure to them and, and recruit and allegedly even abuse some women just to please him? You know, she she knew that she couldn't really have him, but yet she's going to keep trying by bringing him underage women because he is a complete sex addict. I, it's just it's beyond pale, beyond belief that that could happen. Well, how did they meet? Well, allegedly they met through Elaine's father, who latched onto Epstein because he kind of like uh, I don't know if you know Stephen Hoffenberg, who was a Ponzi schemer. He kind of uh, knew he was someone who could help him in his illegal dealings. You know, right. Robert Maxwell was dealing arms back in the Iraq-Iran-Contra affair. So uh, it, it's it's a matter of bad guys kind of stick together. They look for others who can help them further their needs. And I think that's how they hooked up. And I think Ghislaine's father didn't really know Epstein. He knew he could help him make money, but I don't think he knew that Epstein was a sex abuser. So I think right. he thought, oh, he'll be a great catch for, for Ghislaine, you know, and that is what, you know, we kind of believe at this, you know, nobody knows the exact date and how or whatever, but I do believe she was introduced to him by her father in her father's office. And they were friendly at first. And I don't think Ghislaine had that much interest, probably nor did Epstein. But after her father died, she needed a, a father figure. It was kind of the same type of man that she was used to. Her father was abusive, you know didn't treat his family well, you know, was kind of a fraudster, just kind of like Epstein. He did not treat Maxwell well, by all accounts. And she needed him, and they helped each other. Maybe there was some affection early on, but I think it was more on, on her part and, and his need for her connections and what she brought him, people like Prince Andrew and Clinton and all of these people that, that he needed to up his profile and keep his reputation growing, even despite the fact that most people might have known there was something just a little off with him. What they knew and to what extent is certainly different in every case. And I'm sure a lot of people had no idea what was going on, even if they were at dinners with him, these scientists or whatever. So certainly not everybody in that black book knew what was happening, but certainly there were people that did. It's a weird thing, right? Because he's trying to raise his profile, but the more he raises his profile, the more... Obviously, attention he attracts, and the more people start talking about what's going on, and that that will take us as a segue to his first conviction. Can you walk us through that? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the investigation, as the the documentary makes clear, 
they had a boatload of evidence, right. and it resulted in arguably the le- the most lenient sentence ever. Yeah, well, his MO kind of changed. Ghislaine Maxwell was at the center of his 90s kind of lifestyle and um, a central, you know, alleged recruiter of women for him. But then she tried to kind of distance himself from him. He basically dumped her, to be honest with you. And so in the early 2000s, late 90s and 2000s, Although she was still in the shadows running his properties and recruiting women for him, but not to the extent she was. So he came up with this scheme. He's living in Florida. He preyed upon these young, vulnerable high school girls. And it's unbelievable to me to see how he was able to manipulate and get these young women to recruit each other. So basically, young women in high school, most of them were recruiting each other when you look at who he targeted poor, from broken backgrounds in general, he would pay them or she would pay them. Other people would pay them several hundred dollars for a massage, which, you know, sometimes was sexual, sometimes wasn't. But this grooming and this ever revolving door of women that came through in the early 2000s, that's when neighbors started to think, hmm, all these taxis pulling up with these very young girls, there got to be, you know, people started sniffing around. And so the Palm Beach police, got on this and it did surveillance and all of that. But then as, as Epstein got wind that they got wind of him, he then had his own private investigators kind of following the police and, you know, the threats and the harassment and the intimidation that Epstein was placing on, not only on the police, but the women, it was just off the charts. So it took a while, but the police did compile their case and they handed over to the state attorney who at first said, yeah, we're going to string him up. But then I think the intimidation and the harassment and the women were scared. They couldn't get that many women, even though there were like 50 women identified as abuse victims, they couldn't get them to come forward, most of them. So it was difficult. And the high-powered attorneys were tearing their credibility down. You know, they look on their MySpace page and, oh, they have a drink in their hand or they had a marijuana arrest or this, that, and the other. You know, the power and money really just paid that to kind of go away. And so Mike Ryder, the chief of police at Palm Beach at the time, took that above them to the FBI, who then investigated for another couple of years. And then all of a sudden, we have this secret backdoor deal that Alex Acosta, you know, signed off on, really. At that point, he was not, you know, the Secretary of Labor, but he was in charge of the FBI and all of that down there. So we hear there was a really stiff negotiations between he and Epstein's lawyers. But again, I think they just, there's something fishy there. You know, why did that happen? Why did he get the sweetheart deal? It ends up he only had to plead guilty to two much lesser charges when there was a 53 page indictment, you know, ready to go. So there was clear intimidation, I think, on the FBI and and Epstein's attorneys will say that, no, they just didn't have the case that they thought they had and et cetera, et cetera. But we, what we now know is clearly that is not the case. All right. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with Lisa Bryant. So he then gets sentenced and moves into the sort of four season suite of uh, of prison, so to speak. How did that come to be? I would seem to me every criminal would have 
more or less equal treatment, not, not necessarily MCC in New York, but, you know, a similar cell. Do you have an idea how he was able to essentially move into a suite and have all these privileges that he had that no other prisoners had? He certainly had a lot of women that visited him, and he, he got a very unusual work release program that allowed him to leave six days a week, 12 hours a day to go work in his office. Again, I think it's it's power and money that, you know, worked its way through that system as well. And the sheriff's department basically said they'd never had a case like this before. He paid for all the security. You know, we we handled the situation the best as we can. You know, something is clearly fishy, but there was full investigation, which is shocking, that raises eyebrows that, that basically said that they did nothing wrong for the sentence that he was given. They followed the parameters of what they could do there. And you know, who's ever heard of a sex offender out on, on work release, leaving the building with escorts and things? The whole thing stinks really bad. And, and I don't know that we'll ever really get those answers. Epstein, I think, went to the grave with a lot of them. And perhaps Elaine Maxwell has some of those answers. But it was a travesty of, of justice. That's a, a huge example. And then he continued. When, as soon as he got out, he stepped right back into life, just almost as it never changed for him. And that's another big shocking point is that people just kind of looked the other way and they didn't think it was that bad or some people didn't know he, you know he had a great way of covering things up and respun his life and kind of started over he did a lot of image repair and got right back into philanthropy donating money money talks you know people are expecting right. mit look at all the money that these institutions took from him post criminal you know charges post jail time so it's very telling that money is the driving force behind all of this. That's the part on these academic institutions and these prominent individuals that there's no question that the due diligence capabilities that they have would put at the top of the document, uh, he's a convicted criminal. Maybe you don't want to associate with him, and yet they all did. Well, they highlighted again that it was a single count of, of solicitation of prostitution. Basically, that I think that's the biggest slap to the girls is that basically they're calling them prostitutes. Well, newsflash, you cannot be a prostitute when you're underage. None of these girls consented to, to what happened to them. No child can consent to have sex with an adult. So right. calling them prostitutes is just a horrific thing for them. And they still, that is one of the things that really bothers the survivors and, and people that I, that I talk to. Did you know him going in? Had you met him or? Epstein? Yeah. No, no. Actually, I didn't know much about the story until it started percolating. And then I started to read about it and I just could not believe it. It's still in the news every day and the fallout continues. And I think it will continue for years to come because he was such a fraudster and there were so many people and it's such a wide net, you know, that it takes a right. long time to bring these people out. And, and now Elaine Maxwell is about to go to trial. So we'll see what happens there. Really, the bottom line is this is a story about the abuse of power and the justice system failing at so many levels and bringing mm-hmm. to justice these people who, who enabled him for so long. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you very, very much for doing this. We appreciate your time, and it's a fascinating story. People who haven't seen it should go to Netflix and just search Filthy Rich, four-part documentary that is riveting. Thank you very, very much. All right. Thank you so much. All right. That's it for part one of my interview with Lisa Bryant, director of the Netflix series Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. 
Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. Be sure to listen in again tomorrow for part two of the interview, where we talk more about Jeffrey Epstein and especially about Ghislaine Maxwell. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is Ben McNamara. See you tomorrow for part two of my interview with Lisa Bryant.